All right, well, we're back for part two of our series on atheism and skepticism and how to answer that. And what we're going to look at in this section is we're going to examine s several evidences that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible can indeed be trusted and that God is real and that Jesus Christ is different from every other religious philosopher uh, in history. And we're going to examine that part by part, and I'm excited because when you leave this place, you're going to have tools in your hand to then share with other people that you encounter. You're going to have an answer. You're going to have a reason for the hope that is in you. Amen? So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time, once again, that we have to share with each other, Lord. And we pray that as we look at these different evidences, that you would bring them to our minds as, as real things that uh, are, are, are of substance, things that we can believe, things that we can build our hope upon. And Lord, ultimately, they lead us to trust in your word and that we can indeed have an answer for those around us in a skeptical world. We ask your blessing now. We seek it in Jesus' name. Amen. Napoleon made a statement and he said, As for myself, I do not believe that such a person as Jesus Christ ever existed. But as for the people, as the people are inclined to superstition, it is proper not to oppose them. Isn't that an interesting statement coming from the mouth of Napoleon? There are many people that are making these types of statements today. You may have seen television programs on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, that try to have a balanced uh, opinion, and they ask the questions such as, does God really exist? Have you seen those things uh, there? Can the Bible really be trusted? And these programs are becoming very popular, and they try, or they attempt rather, to be non-biased, but in fact, they ultimately lead you to the conclusion by the end of the program that the Bible cannot be trusted. This type of thought, this type of philosophy is becoming more and more popular. There's a man named Thomas Carlyle, and he said this, if Jesus Christ were to come today, people would not even crucify him. They would ask him to dinner and hear what he had to say and then make fun of him. Isn't that a sad statement to make? But this man said it about Jesus. Another man, Bjorna Yulveas, said, The story of Jesus is very fascinating. It still has such a tremendous power even after 2,000 years, but we don't really know if he existed as a historical figure. These type of statements are becoming more and more prevalent. People like Charles Darwin have written a number of, not Charles Darwin, I'm sorry, um, uh, Charles Dawkins, uh, what is his name? Charles Dawkins, not Dawkins, uh, Dawkins, but I'm trying to remember his first name. Uh, I forget his name, but anyway, he's a very, very popular proponent of evolution, and uh, he, uh, he's a modern evolutionist, does not believe in the Bible, does not believe in God, and has written numerous books that discredit any concept that God exists, and it is becoming destructive to the Christian world today and uh, has continued to be promoted again and again. And so this is a serious problem in society. Um, more copies of the Bible were, are, have been produced last year in America than in any other time period before. And yet, we find that more and more Christians are becoming ignorant about God's Word and what it actually says. They know little or nothing about it. A few years ago, there was a test of Bible knowledge given to a group of seniors in high school. 
and most of them failed the test completely. Some were so confused that they thought Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers or that the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Very, very sad. Others said that Eve was created from an apple and that the stories of Jesus used in teaching were called parodies. parodies. More than 80% of the pupils could not even complete such familiar quotations such as, many are called but few are chosen, right? And so this is very, very sad, but it's becoming more and more. The reason that atheism, the reason that this type of philosophy is becoming so, so popular is simply because people are becoming more and more ignorant about God's Word. They don't know anything about it. Many people read books about the Bible. You know, there's the famous book, The Da Vinci Code, which is supposed to unravel the mystery of Jesus and the Bible. And people will read that book. They'll watch the movie. They'll read books about, um, you know, the Left Behind series and all these various books, but they rarely read the Bible themselves. There was a Gallup poll done and it found that 60% of Americans didn't know what the Trinity was, the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 60% of people couldn't even say the three parts of the Trinity. 66% couldn't say who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And 79% of people were unable to name even a one Old Testament prophet. Now, friends, that's sad, but that's the reality of the society that we're living in. When more people were questioned, um, uh, on television or radio, it's remarkable to see how little they know about the subject. It's like the little boy that thought that the apostles were married to the epistles, right? And uh, that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. More than 91% of Americans own a Bible and 85% consider themselves to be Christians, but only 40% say that they are born again. More than half... Uh, believe that their entrance will be gained into heaven by uh, their, their behavior, good works versus bad works. And although 80% believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, 61% believe the Holy Spirit is not real. Isn't that sad? There was another Gallup poll that was done recently, and it found that something like 60% of all ministers of all denominations and when you put them all together, 60% of those people believe that Jesus committed sin while he was here upon the earth. 60% of all ministers believe, have that belief. It's kind of like the young girl that uh, was cleaning the house one day. And she came across a big family Bible and it was all covered with dust. And so she knocked off all the dust and she blew it off. And she looked at it and she took it to her mom and she said, Mommy, what's this? And the mother said, well, honey, she said, that's God's book. That's the Bible. And she said, well, she said, maybe we should give it back to him because we're sure not using it, right? And that's the reality of our society. We are not, we've become ignorant about the things that we once held so dear. And so <clears throat> philosophy of atheism, the philosophy of agnosticism, the philosophy of evolution and all these things have crept in and they've, they've started off slowly, but now they've crept into society and basically society is being consumed by all types of different ideas and the Bible today is being thrown out the window. And so how do we answer this type of argument? How do we answer these things? How many of you have heard of the term called Christian apologetics? You've heard of this term. Many people say, does it mean to apologize? 
for, for Christianity. Well, that's not what it means. What it simply means is for somebody to give a defense for something they believe in. And if you're specifically for religious, uh, the dictionary definition is reasoned arguments or writings and justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. So in other words, apologetics is simply defending what you believe, giving a reason for what you believe and why you believe it, right? And so in other words, as I mentioned in our first seminar, taking the Bible to somebody who doesn't believe in God and saying you need to be saved because Jesus came to die for your sins, while that is truth, it may not be specifically what's applicable to that person at that moment in time. Does that make sense? Because they don't respond to the Bible. They don't believe in the Bible. And so but apologetics simply uses their own line of reasoning, their own line of thinking to approach that person with evidence that A, maybe you should rethink, of your, rethink your philosophy that God doesn't exist, rethink your philosophy that the Bible can't be trusted because here is the evidence. Does that make sense? So apologetics typically relies upon external evidence. In other words, out, evidence outside the Bible to show that the Bible can be trusted. And it kind of lays a foundation for people that have no Christian background or no religion, religious preference. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what apologetics is. So with that being said, we're going to look at a number of evidences of why the Bible can be trusted. So I want to ask the question first, what does the Bible claim about itself? In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says how much Scripture is inspired by God. How much, everyone? All Scripture. In other words, we, we believe as Christians, we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, that the Bible is indeed the word given from God. Now, granted, it was written by men, but it was written by men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, correct? And it was not created by men. It was not invented by men. But the thought process that is involved with the writing of the Scriptures was given by God. That's what we believe. We don't believe that certain parts of the Bible is not inspired. We don't believe that certain parts are, 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 are allegories or just things that mean other things. But we believe that the Bible is taken as it is written or should be taken as it's written, correct? And so making that claim, making that claim, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You better have some proof to back that up. Does that make sense? You can't just make that claim. You know, people down south especially, uh, no offense to anyone that's down there, but I grew up there so I can make this statement. But people down south many times have this saying, and they say, God said it, the Bible reveals it, and I believe it, and that settles it, right? And so that's faith. Praise the Lord for that. But that is not an answer that you can give to somebody that doesn't believe in the Bible and then tell them they're going to go to hell because they don't believe, right? And so we need to have solid evidence. <clears throat> what did Jesus claim about himself? Matthew chapter 27, verse 43 says, Jesus said, I am the what? Son of God. Now let me ask you a question today. If I came into this seminar and I said to you, I am the Son of God, would you have a challenging problem with that, yes or no? Would that be a struggle for you? Uh, if I said, I'm the Son of God, how many of you would believe me if I made that statement? I didn't say I am a Son of God, but I said I am the Son of God. Would you find that troubling? So when Jesus made that claim, 
That troubled a lot of people, did it not? <clears throat> so Jesus gave evidence. He gave evidence through his life. He gave evidence through miracles. He gave lots of different evidences that, through the prophecies, through the scripture, that proved that he was who he claimed to be, correct? And we also need to do the same. So for somebody to make the claim, I am God, they need to have something to back it up, right? Notice this from Josh McDowell. He says, why don't the names of Buddha, <clears throat> Muhammad, or Confucius offend people? The reason is that the others did not claim to be God, but Jesus did. What makes Jesus different from all other philosophers, from all these other guys, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and many, many others? What makes them different? Jesus claimed to be God, and the others did not. And see, that offends people, because when, when there is a concept when there is a, rather, a personal encounter with God or with a concept of God, then that, that uh, basically deems that we are held personally accountable for our actions. Does that make sense? And, and we become convicted about the issues in our life when there is an encounter with God. And people don't like to have that experience, right? They don't want to be personally held accountable for the things that they do in their life. So in order to be free from that, Men do what? They reject God, right? They cast him away. They say, we don't want anything to do with him. And so these other people, Buddha, Muhammad, and others, many of them give a religion that does not hold a person personally accountable. And we'll talk more about that in a later time. How can I truly have confidence in the Bible that it is real and that I can place my trust in it? What reasonable evidence is there to prove its validity. If the Bible claims to be inspired by God and Jesus Christ claims to be the Son of God, then if there is such a claim, if that is a real idea, which we believe that it is, but just thinking non-biasly here, if that is a real idea, if that is a, even a possibility, then do I owe myself the duty to look into it, yes or no? Should I explore that, yes or no? Because the consequences of not doing it could be very, very vital, right? And so I should look into it. So when we consider that, we have to ask the question, what proof is there outside of the Bible itself that proves that it can be true or that it is true and that it can be trusted? And so we want to look at a number of evidences today that suggest that the Bible indeed can be trusted. The first one is prophecy. And uh, I'm going to be quoting some scriptures, but I'm going to also give you the outside argument as well. Isaiah 42, 8 through 9 says, I am the Lord. New things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Okay. So in other words, God is making the claim that new things I declare when? Before or after they happen? Before they happen, right? Secondly, Isaiah 46, 10, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am who? God. And there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done. Now, I want you to think about this concept for just a minute. Suppose that I uh, told you in the next 10 years there's going to be a thousand things that happen to you and I'm going to name them one by one. And so I, I, I named them all off and you wrote them down. And sure enough, as time went by after 10 years, those things happened just like I said they happened, right? 
So let's say you get to number 500 and it happened just the way that I said it would happen, right? All 500 things. Would you have confidence that I could tell you the future, yes or no? You would, right? And let's say that you got to 800 and all those things that I told you would happen, they happen just like that, right? But to be totally trustworthy, to be 100% trustworthy, all 1,000 things had to happen exactly the way that I said, right? And so you come down to 900 and it's still the same, everything I said. And you get all the way down to the 999th item and actually the 1,000th item. And the last thing that I said should happen did not happen. And it was a major event in your life, you know, like maybe getting married or, or having children or whatever. Could you trust that I would be 100% accurate all the time, yes or no? Even though I was right 999 times, could you still have confidence that I was right 100% of the time? Not at all, right? And therefore, even, even though I was wrong only one time, you would be very skeptical of anything else I said because you would have to trust that it was true. Does that make sense? You would have to have evidence. And if I'm wrong once, could I be wrong again? I could be wrong again, right? And so you would lose your confidence in me. Notice what happens with God. Notice what God does. God essentially puts himself on the line. He essentially lays his entire reputation out as being someone who is totally, completely trustworthy. <clears throat> he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done. In other words, God says, I have the ability, I have the power, I have the, the knowledge to foretell events in the future before they happen with 100% accuracy, right? And if God is wrong even one time, how many times? Even once, we have to completely mistrust everything else that he said. Does that make sense? So you see how God is completely putting himself out there and he exposed himself and he says, I'm willing to be put to the test, right? To me, that's powerful because I wouldn't be willing to do that because I don't have confidence that what I can tell in the future is really going to happen, yet God does. And indeed, as we examine the evidence, God truly has the ability to tell the future. And I'm just going to run through these very quickly, but we, um, we know these very well. But in Daniel chapter 2, 7, and 8, God predicts four world empires hundreds of years before they ever even come into existence. Did you know that? You know, the rise of, of Greece, the rise of Medo-Persia, the rise of Rome, the fall of Rome. And as you compare the prophecy to history, it had happened hundreds and hundreds of years and even thousands of years before it ever happened. In Isaiah 45, God describes a man named Cyrus the Great. And he names him by name, he says Cyrus, he names him by name as the man who would overthrow Babylon 150 years to 180 years, depending on who you talk to, years before this man was ever even born. Now, friends, that's a miracle. That's a miracle, and yet the Bible does it. They've tested the dates of the prophecy. They know when it was written. They know when he was born, and they know when he did it, and they have no explanation for it. Um, Alexander the Great's world conquest in Daniel chapter 8, it talks about his rise into power. It talks about his fall, about his division of his empire into four parts after his death. And Daniel was, wrote about this 
And he was not even alive to see it begin to happen. And yet it happened exactly the way that he said it would. The breakup of the Roman Empire into ten parts, um, and there's numerous other things, all the disasters and, and, and the wars and different things, all the increase of this that we see happening right in the last hundred years, all these things were written about many years in advance. And there is no explanation for them except that God had to know ahead of time. There must be a God that revealed these things to men because how else could a man foretell 2,500 years of world history with 100% accuracy? See, friends, this is what made me a Christian. This is what made me a Seventh-day Adventist is because when I began to study these prophecies, I said, how could it be even feasibly possible that this could be foretold with accuracy unless there was somebody with a master hand behind it that told these things ahead of time. It is absolutely impossible, and yet it is. Amen? And it is unexplainable. I actually went to some of my college professors when I started studying these things, and I asked them, I said, guys, look, this is what I'm finding. This is what I'm reading. When I check it with history, when I check it with the things that were written, uh, I find that that the Bible predicted these things hundreds and even thousands of years in advance. Do you have an explanation for this? And you know what they said to me? These were college PhDs that were teaching evolution, that were teaching all these different things, and they said to me, we don't have time to talk to you about this. That's what they said. They didn't have an answer. And I tried multiple times. I said, look, I said, I've been putting all my confidence in you guys, all my trust in you guys, can't you give me some kind of answer? This is what I found. Surely there's something that goes against it. I mean, I did my best, to be honest. And they said, we can't talk to you about this. Because they didn't have an answer. All they had was more theories and more reasons why I should believe something like evolution that took more faith to believe than God's word took to believe. And uh, I'm thankful that I found what I found. Amen? There were also multiple prophecies about the Messiah that were written thousands of years in advance. Um, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his life that were written in advance through the Old Testament. Some of those, his birth, his birthplace, his betrayal, the price paid to the traitor, his beating and abuse, his pierced hand, his feet, he was numbered with the transgressors. They cast lot for his clothing, his words on the cross. These things were written about him in advance. And it's amazing because in Psalm 22, verse 16, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. This was written by King David. But it was written approximately 1,500 years before crucifixion was ever even invented. It was not even a custom back then to crucify people. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans, and there was no such practice that was taking place. There were other things. They'd make people, you know, walk through fire and those kind of things. But the, the practice of crucifixion was not taking place until the time of the Romans. And yet we see from prophecy that David writ it, writ, wrote it thousands of years in advance. Now, of the 300 prophecies that were written about Jesus... A college professor, one day, he said, uh, we should examine and see out of the, just eight, not all 300, but just eight of these prophecies, how many, or I'm sorry, what are the odds that one man could fulfill only eight out of these 300 prophecies? And you know what the answer was? 
This is the answer right here on the screen. You see it. One out of, I don't know how many this is. If anybody could tell me that number, I'll give you a cookie. Uh, but I don't know. And here's, here's the reality, guys. That is just 8 out of 300. I don't even know, I could be wrong, but I don't even know that that many people have ever lived on this planet. Does that make sense? Have that many people ever even existed? Maybe the pre-flood there were, there were more, I don't know. But that's a huge number. I don't even know how to pronounce it. But the reality is, is that it is virtually impossible. Does that make sense? Just 8 out of 300. And yet there was a man, if you look at his life, you look at what the Bible says, you even look at history, Josephus and these others, you look at the historical accounts, and he fulfilled all of these prophecies that were written hundreds of years before he ever lived. And his name is Jesus. Now, friends, how you can explain that to me is not understandable. I have no idea how, and yet it is real, and yet it is there. And so prophecy reveals that God's word can be trusted. It reveals that it is, it is true. It reveals that there is a greater mind behind the writings in that book. It is not just an invention of man. Amen? And we're seeing prophecies fulfilled even to our day. You know, the 1260 years, like we talked about in our first one, how could a man have known ahead of time all those things would happen? It's impossible, except that God revealed it to him. Second one is that we want to look at is archaeology. And um, archaeology is a, is a kind of a passion of mine. I really enjoy it. And archaeo biblical archaeology, archaeology is one of the most fascinating things to study because it, it really makes the Bible come alive. Let me share with you some thoughts on archaeology. From Genesis to Revelation, every single book in the Bible, how many? Every single book in the Bible can pull some sort of support from the field of archaeology. In other words, when the Bible said something happened in the Bible, when it said it happened in, in Scripture, in each book it will list events that happen, etc. In every single book, at least one thing has been found to confirm that what the Bible said happened really happened. Does that make sense? So every book of the Bible, isn't that exciting? That's amazing to me. And secondly, archaeology itself, though, cannot prove that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. The, archaeology does not prove that God inspired the Bible. Now, you may say, wait a minute, how, how can you say that? It proves simply this. It proves this. What it proves is that when the Bible says something happened in history, we find from archaeology that it happened just the way the Bible said it happened. In other words, when it says the children of Israel went to battle in such and such a year and they, they were victorious, etc., you dig up the site where they had the battle and you say, wow, what the Bible recorded is history really happened. Does that make sense? When it talks about the seven churches in Revelation, they dug up those seven churches, Ephesus, Philadelphia, and all those different ones. So it confirms it. What, what proves the inspiration of the Bible? What proves that? Not archaeology, but what? The example we just looked at. Prophecy, right? When the Bible says something will happen this way, and it happens the way that it said it would, that proves that the Bible was given by God, right? But archaeology just says, oh, what the Bible said happened really 
happened that way, right? So in a sense, it doesn't prove that it's inspired, but it's still powerful because it gives evidence that the Bible is trustworthy as a historical source. Does that make sense? All right. Now, this is also powerful. There has never been an artifact discovered that ever discredits the Bible account. Did you know that? Never. And, and don't let anyone convince you that they have. Just because somebody found an ancient bone uh, that they claim to be five million years old doesn't mean the Bible's not true, okay? It doesn't mean that at all because that's just a claim that they're making. But what it does is, is there has never been anything that where the Bible said one thing and they dig up something that says, oh, it didn't happen this way, but it happened this way. It's never happened, never happened. In fact, every archaeological find, I should say every biblical archaeological find that has ever been discovered proves the authenticity of the Bible account. Friends, that's a powerful thought. That's a powerful thought. And, and not many people know that today, but it's true. Every archaeological find has always been in harmony with what the Bible said happened in history. That's powerful, friends. Let me give you a few examples, and then when I get through this, I'm going to tie these together, and you're going to see something absolutely amazing I'm going to show you. Number one, the city of Ebla in northern Syria was discovered in the 1970s. Now, I know typically the screen is closer and you can see these, so I hope you can see the smaller print. But in the 1970s, there were 15,000 clay tablets that were discovered ranging all the way back to 2300 B.C. That's like 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago, right? Uh, it dated all the way back to the, to the times of the patriarchs like Abraham and others, and a very, very long time ago. And what it, these tablets do, they give substantial evidence on biblical place names. In other words, you know how the Bible names all these places that existed, right? Sodom and Gomorrah and the Hittite nation and all these different things. And in many instances, there are not really records of some of these places existing outside of the Bible. In other words, they haven't dug up evidence, okay? So for years, what skeptics did is they said, look, all these biblical place names, all these places that the Bible said existed, they never existed because we can't find any evidence. The only place that they're listed is here, right? But in 1970s, they dug up all these clay tablets and they found out that indeed all the places that the Bible named were there. All these clay tablets described these places. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, other places such as Hazar, Megiddo, Lachish, Dor, Gaza, and others, all these things that were found in the Bible, they found these tablets that also listed the same places that the Bible said were there. That's powerful, friends, because that provides outside sources other than the Bible that confirms the accuracy of the Scripture. Amen? All right. There was the also the Hittite nation. You know, it always talks about the children of Israel going to battle with the Hittites and fighting them. Forty-seven times the Bible describes the Hittite nation. But skeptics for years said, you know what? That place never existed. Why? Simply because that we found no records of the Hittite nation outside of what the Bible claims. But guess what happened? Something powerful happened. In 1906, the entire Hittite capital city was discovered 
and 1,200 years of records were also found that described various battles with the children of Israel and all these different things that the Bible said happened. And guess what happened to the mouth of the skeptic? It closed and they had to move on because they found something that confirmed biblical accuracy. There was also something found called the Sumerian King's List. This is powerful because what this does is it, it is a list of different kings that reigned for different periods of time. And it actually shows these several kings that ruled for hundreds of years at a time. Did you know that? Look it up, hundreds of years at a time. And, and how is that possible? Because people will tell you, of course, people don't believe that man ever lived that long unless you believe in the Bible, right? Where it talks about before the flood. Then it records a flood in the same list of kings, a flood during which time no kings reigned. There was a, a certain time after that. And then it begins, it picks up where it left off, where it left off after the flood. And the, the reign of the kings became much what? Much shorter. Why? Because the lifespan of man became much what after the flood? It became much shorter. This Sumerian king's list coincides with the biblical account of the flood and all the stories that, that go along with it. And so it's evidence that the Bible was not speaking nonsense when it talked about the flood. There was also a man named King Sargon that was mentioned uh, and the Bible, and people thought that he was a legend until his castle was dug up one day. And uh, this man, it talks about his overthrowing um, uh, the city of Ashod, and it describes that in Isaiah chapter 20. And for years, people thought that this man never could have possibly existed, and yet they found his castle, and there it was. And it was described just as it was in the Bible, evidence that what uh, happened in the Bible really happened in history. And people were flabbergasted. The skeptics had to close their mouths. Then there was Sodom and Gomorrah, which was always picked on kind of as a, as a place that never really existed. But then they found it. And they found a place that was literally burned with fire and brimstone. From the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, he says this, there is even evidence that the layers of sedimentary rock were molded together by intense heat. By what, everyone? Intense heat. And evidence of burning has been found on Mount Sodom. So just as the Bible described it, that is how they found it. In fact, they found it in the very place, the very geographical location where the Bible said it would be. That's where they found it. And they found it burned with fire and brimstone. Brimstone, the literal brimstone that, that uh, uh, they found evidence of that inside that area of burning. And so, friends, I mean, you look at this evidence, it is absolutely overwhelming, absolutely powering, overpowering. The city of Jericho, there was a man named John Garstang and his team that discovered between 1930 and 1936 the city of Jericho and the, um, all the city that's therein. And you know the account of Jericho, right? They marched around the city how many times? Seven times, right? And then what happened to the walls? They came crumbling down, right? And the children of Israel ran up to the city. Well, there's a problem with that concept that the skeptics said, that the skeptics often referred to. And the problem was that anytime you take a look at a city of how it falls, 
it, when the walls crumble, how do they crumble when they crumble? They crumble how? In, right? You take any building and you blow it up or break it down or do whatever, and the walls of that city will just crumble in like this, right? But in the story of the Bible of Jericho, the walls crumbled outward. And the Bible says that the children of Israel scampered up into the city and took the city. Well, the skeptics said, no way. It can't happen that way because walls never fall outward, but they fall inward, right? But notice what John Garstang recorded in his diary. He says, as to the main fact then, there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up over the ruins into the city. Why so unusual? Because the walls of cities do not fall outwards. They fall how? Inwards. That's what he says. And yet Joshua, in Joshua we read, the walls fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city and every man before him, they took the city. The walls were made to fall outward. If you read the book Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says that the angels of God stood up and they were pulling the walls down so that the children of Israel could run up inside the city. Friends, the Bible accounts can be trusted and more and more every day evidence is being discovered that proves that fact. There were several other things that were found. The city, um, I'm going to just run through these real quickly. The city was fortified. The attack occurred just after the harvest time. The inhabitants had no time to flee. The siege was very short. The walls fell out. We'll mention that. The city was not plundered. When people overtook cities back in those days, did they just leave all the stuff behind? And yet the children of Israel did, didn't they? And they said they found that the city was burned exactly how the Bible said. They found all the stuff there and it was set on fire and it was burned after the city was taken, just like the Bible said. I'm going to slip past a couple of these because of time, um, but I want to jump to some of these. The Dead Sea Scrolls in 1949 were discovered. Mark Finley tells the story when he visited the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are some of the oldest biblical manuscripts we have today. And he went to a museum and he, and he looked at them and he's, he was reading them in Hebrew and he told me that the passage he was reading was Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah. And he said, then I opened my Bible to Isaiah 53, I had it in my hand, and he said, as I read the scroll in Hebrew, I then read it in English. And he said, chills went down my spine because what I was reading was virtually the same thing manuscripts hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old read the same as our Bible reads today. What they found through these manuscripts is that the Bible we hold in our hands today is about 99% the same as it was written then. And the only variation are things like articles like A, N, and V, the things that are really not, they don't change the meaning of, of the passage. And so what the, we can have confidence today, amen, that the Bible we hold in our hand is the same God, Bible that God intends us to have today. And it's powerful, powerful, powerful. All right, the Moabite stone was discovered in 1868 in Jordan. What this stone tells us is that let's suppose that two people get in a fight. You know, I got in a fight once when I was in seventh grade, and I got whooped pretty bad. Have you ever had that experience before? Hopefully not, but I did. But let's suppose you get in a fight with somebody, and at the end of that fight, there are two stories to tell, right? The one guy says, look at his black eye. I whooped him pretty good, right? 
And the other guy says, what are you talking about? Look at your big, fat, bloody lip. I whooped you pretty good, right? And everybody has different stories to tell, okay? And if you interview the two people that fought or even any of the people that are there, you all get a different story, right? That's how rumors get started, huh? And so in the Bible, there are accounts, written accounts, of the children of Israel going to battle with the Moabites, right? You read all about it throughout the Old, Old Testament. And they fought together, and sometimes they won the children of Israel, sometimes the Moabites won. But there it is recorded in the Bible. For years, people said these battles never happen because there is nowhere else where they're written. And so they found in 1868 the Moabite stone, which is absolutely amazing because as they reviewed the Moabite stone, they found that indeed these battles did take place. And not only did they take place, but the account that was written on the Moabite stone by the Moabites was the same exact account <clears throat> that was recorded in the Bible by the children of Israel. Friends, that's fascinating because again, it confirms that what the Bible said happened really happened. The Cyrus Cylinder was a similar account that was found talking about Cyrus overthrowing Babylon. And then in 1798, there was the Rosetta Stone found by Napoleon and his men. And what the Rosetta Stone did was it helped to decipher uh, the hieroglyphics that were written by the Egyptians. For years, those things were locked and you couldn't they couldn't understand them. But as the there were three languages written on the um, Rosetta Stone, and by studying those other languages, they were able to decipher the hieroglyphics on the stone, and then they were able to understand what was written on the temples, etc. And what they found was that there were several biblical stories that were recorded by the Egyptians and describing the children of Israel. One such story that was discovered was that they found these two images, and there were seven skinny cows and seven fat cows. And written above it was seven years we ate, I'm sorry, seven years we had, we had plenty, and we ate, and seven years we did not have, right? And so it's describing that famine in Egypt from the biblical account when Joseph was there. Isn't that amazing? And friends, you won't see that on the news. You won't see that on ABC or NBC. They're not going to put it up there, but these are the things that are being discovered today. Now, let me ask you a question, friends. Very, very interesting. Watch this. What do all these dates of discovery have in common? Now, notice this. The city of Ebla in the 1970s, the Hittite nation, 1906, city of Jericho, 1930s, Dead Sea Scrolls, 1948, Moabite Stone, 1868, and the Rosetta Stone, 1799. What do all of these dates have in common? Can anyone guess? Hmm? You're exactly right. They all come after the year, guess what? 1798. Now, is there a connection there, do you think? You think that's by coincidence, yes or no? People have been digging stuff up for years, but all of these major archaeological discoveries were all discovered after the year 1798 because God fulfilled major prophecy in that year. And he is letting people know in these last days from every way imaginable, every way possible, that his word is it indeed can be trusted. Amen? 
Jesus made the statement, Luke 19, 40, uh, chapter 19, verse 40, I tell you, Jesus replied, if my disciples keep quiet, the very what? Stones will cry out. And indeed today, friends, the stones are crying out more than ever that God is real, that God exists, His Word is trustworthy, and we can put confidence in it today. Can you say amen to that? Praise the Lord today, friends, for God's Word and His truth. All right, let's look at, uh, very quickly, uh, at science. Um, just a few small things about science. In Job 26, verse 7, it says, He hangs the earth upon what? Upon nothing, right? Now, if you think about that statement, He hangs the earth upon nothing. Every religion back since through history has a description of why the earth is the way it is, right? Why it sits there. You know, you look at Greek mythology and it talks about this man. What was his name? Atlas, right? And he holds the world upon his back. And he was there because he was punished. And all these different things have their reasons why the earth is like it is. But the Bible says in Job 26, 7, he hangs the earth upon nothing, which essentially says that the earth is sitting out there in space. Now, uh, scholars agree that Job was likely the oldest book in the Bible that was written. And yet Job knew that the earth was sitting out there in space, hanging upon what? Upon nothing. Why did he know that? Because he said that God is the one that stretched the heavens and he put the earth in its place, right? And so hundreds of years, <clears throat> or thousands of years rather, before science figured out this fact, the Bible knew it ahead of time. The Bible knew it ahead of time. He sits on the earth, circle of the earth, Isaiah 40, 22. You know, when was America discovered? Essentially, historians tell us. What year? 1492, right? And I think the song goes, it's a kid's song, in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? And where did he, you know, back during that time period, everybody thought the world was what? Flat as a pancake, right? Flat as a pancake. And they said, <clears throat> if you sail so far across the world, what will happen to your boat? You're going to just fall over the edge into oblivion, right? I mean, what a ridiculous theory, but that's what they thought. And Christopher Columbus, Columbus said, no, I believe that it's possible to sail around the world. And do you know where he got that idea? He got it from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, where the Bible says that the earth is like a circle. And sure enough, when he read that text, he came over just at the time when prophecy was about to begin being fulfilled and America would be discovered and be left as a religious nation. Friends, that's amazing. And uh, God knew this centuries ahead of mankind. And it was recorded right there in the Bible all the time. Um, some of the other things, health principles that were written in the Bible, you know, God talks to the children of Israel. He gives them certain things to eat, certain things not to eat, even before that with Noah and so forth. But He tells us to eat certain things and not to eat certain things. He tells us how to dispose of our waste. And, and this is not, you know, when you really think about it, science today is now confirming all of these scientific principles that God listed thousands of years ago. They say if you want to, to be healthy, if you want to avoid getting sick, wash your hands before you what? Before you eat, right? Didn't God say that thousands of years ago? 
God said, if you want to be healthy, get rid of your waste, right? And did it, uh, uh, don't we know that to be true today scientifically? God said, don't eat certain foods. They're bad for you. Pork, shrimp, all the bad stuff. Has science confirmed that to be true today? Yes or no? Absolutely. Why in the, is it by coincidence that all those things that God gave thousands of years ago are now being proven by science today as true and trustworthy? That is not by coincidence, friends. There is no way that man could have known that back in those days, and yet God recorded it in his word and is now being confirmed today. Friends, these are evidences that if you think about it logically, that God's word has to be trusted. The Bible's unity written on three different continents, three different languages, written by about 50 different people over 1,500 years. Most of the writers never met each other, and yet all of the books of the Bible flow together in perfect unity and perfect harmony, and it is obvious that there is a mastermind behind them. It's like 50 different artists trying to uh, make one sculpture and they don't know anything about each other. They've met, never met each other. You put them all in a room by themselves, all in 50 different rooms, and you say, make whatever comes to your mind. They have no idea about the other people. And they make a piece and another makes a piece and another. And at the end of that hour that you give them, they all bring their piece out and they set it down in the room and then they leave. And at the end of those 50 people, when they all finish, you come back in the room and there doesn't sit 50 individual pieces of sculpture, but one beautiful statue, right? That is the same equivalency. It is not humanly possible, and yet it is there, right? The Bible's unity, it is, it is from Genesis to Revelation, it is one flow of continuous thought. And the more you study the Bible, the deeper it gets, and there's no way possible that man could have invented it. It is just too deep. It is just too connected. I'm going to jump to my last one, and that is plain reason. Men who deny the Bible know that such a person as Jesus Christ existed, do they not? People will say, yeah, Jesus existed, but he was just a good man. He was just a good philosopher. He gave good morals, but that's as far as it goes, right? Have you heard that before? That's what people say. However, a good teacher will not deceive somebody and then teach other people to deceive others about himself, correct? Now, what was the statement that Jesus made? He said, I am the what? Son of God, right? You remember we read that from, uh, I believe it was Matthew or Luke. And Jesus said, I am the Son of God. Therefore, Jesus, if he is really not the Son of God, we are left with only two other options. Either he's crazy, he's out of his mind, or he's the greatest liar and deceiver the world has ever seen, right? Does that make sense? Now, can a liar be a good moral teacher, yes or no? Can a liar be someone who deceives others about who he is? Not at all. And yet Jesus made the claim, I am God, I am the Son of God, and people followed him because they believed that statement that came out of his mouth. Either it's true or Jesus is the greatest deceiver that has ever existed. When you think about the eyewitness of the apostles and the resurrection, um, these men had nothing to gain. In fact, when Jesus died and everyone said it's all over with, they went back home, 
right? And, and they had nothing to gain. And yet when Jesus was resurrected, they went and they followed what he said. They preached the gospel. They were poor. They were persecuted. They had, they had the worst odds against them. And they lived some of the most brutal lives that humanity can exist. They didn't get rich off of it. There was nothing to gain for themselves personally. And yet these men lived their lives like no other men in the history of this world. Amen? Why? Because they absolutely believed what they knew to be true. And that was that Jesus had really risen from the dead. They had seen him with their own eyes and he gave them a job to do and they were willing to do it at any cost. They had nothing to gain. They, they, they had no personal gain involved and yet they were willing to make such great sacrifices that the world has never seen. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we have to ask ourselves the same question today. We have three options. Either Jesus is a liar, he's crazy, or he really is who he said he was. Plain reason will allow no other option. And we have to ask ourselves today, who really is Jesus? I want to close with a statement from C.S. Lewis, and I like what he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I met somebody once that thought they were an orange. He was on drugs. He was on ecstasy. A man who is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and, and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, merely a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, Jesus is not an ordinary man. He did not give us the option. He didn't say, call me good, call me a good man, call me a good philosopher, a good moral teacher. He didn't give us that option. He said, I'm the son of God and you're either going to believe that or you're not. Does that make sense? There is no other option with Jesus. You cannot put him in the same category as these other world philosophers. If Jesus is not divine, he cannot offer us eternal life. He can only offer us more ideology, ideology which the world has had enough of. You see, but if he's divine, his offer of eternal life is real. And if we miss it, in the end, we have lost everything to gain the nothing we thought was everything. The Bible can absolutely be trusted today. There is overwhelming evidence, and there's more that I didn't even touch on, but there's overwhelming evidence that the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus can be trusted and that God's word is real and Jesus is a real person who wants an intimate relationship with us. Amen. If what the Bible says is true, then we have the most beautiful picture of, 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 of hope, of everlasting life that the world has ever known. But if it is not true, then we need to walk out and, and, and leave it. But friends, let me tell you what, when you experience it in your life personally, when you know who God is personally, you've had a personal relationship with Jesus and you've witnessed his power in your life, then there is no other alternative. There is no other way to go. There is no way to turn back to. 
because when you taste it, you know it's true and you can't ever get away from it. Amen. I'm thankful today that Christianity is not just simply blind faith, but there is evidence today that we can build our faith upon. Christianity is the most reasonable option there is. Amen. How many of you would agree with that today? I'm so thankful to have God's word. I'm so thankful to know that God is real and that his truth stands in these days and that there's evidence for it. Amen. Why don't we pray together as we close? Father in heaven, we're thankful today that your truth is solid, your truth is real. And we have to ask ourselves the question today, what are we going to do about it? That's your appeal to us. How are we going to respond to the truth that you've given to your people in these last days? It's all around, it's everywhere, and there is no getting away from it, there is no turning away from it. And Lord, we have to, to respond to it one way or the other. And I pray today that our response would be yes, that we will fall at your feet and call you Lord, and that your spirit would live within us, and that we would be a light to those who are around us as well. Help us take this evidence and share it with others to be the witness that you've called us to be. And may they also experience the wonderful joy of having a relationship with you. That is our prayer today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.